Do you ever find yourself feeling bitter? Do you kind of hate this about yourself? Have you ever wondered if you could do something about it? Today, we're talking about nine mental patterns that are very much associated with making you feel bitter. Some of them are cognitive errors. Some of them are just inflexible patterns, but all of them contribute to a sense of resentment and sometimes misery. If you've ever wondered about some little cognitive tweaks that you can make in order to feel a little bit more positive, you'll want to listen to today's baggage check. Welcome. I'm Dr. Andrea Bonnier, and this is Baggage Check, mental health talk and advice, with new episodes every other Friday. Baggage Check is not a show about luggage or travel. Incidentally, it is also not a show about the different types of Hungarian pickles. So let's get started. I wanted to talk about some cognitive patterns today that are a little bit different than the ones that we often focus on, the ones that make us more anxious or more fearful or more threatened. Instead, I wanted to talk about the patterns that lead to us feeling bitter. Now, bitter might mean different things to different people, but I think for most of us, it's a sense of resentment, it's a sense of pessimism, cynicism, regret, it doesn't tend to feel good. And though it might be certainly a natural and human reaction to feel bitterness every once in a while, what we're talking about today are the behavioral and cognitive and emotional patterns that make it feel more enmeshed, more ingrained. And those are what we're looking to help you with. When does a mood become a personality? Certainly over the course of our lives, we run across all types of people, a whole plethora of personalities. And of course, some of personality is genetic, but some of the aspects of our personalities and our emotional makeups develop over time through our psychological habits. The difference between a mood and a personality can be subtle and just a matter of degree. All those things like the way we interpret events, the thoughts that run through our heads like clockwork, and the explanations that we give ourselves for how the world works, those matter immensely in who we start to be as we see the world. Few people would want to become bitter or negative, and yet it's not uncommon, especially for people who have experienced more than their share of tough times. So if you want to have a more hopeful an optimistic outlook on life, let's talk about nine mental habits that we can think about adjusting or changing. Are you ready? Here we go. Number one, not forgiving others. Many people equate forgiveness with forgetting that something happened altogether or with saying that it was okay that it did happen. That's not what forgiveness is about. And many people claim that they have forgiven someone for something, while in reality, they have not. What real forgiveness means is allowing yourself to be free from the resentment of having been wronged, to accept that something has occurred, and to believe that you deserve to move on from it. It's to declare your independence from perseverating or ruminating on how to get revenge, how to harm another person or make things even, 
It's to stop dwelling on how to make that other person make up for what they've done or to continue to let that corrode your emotional well-being. It is letting go in the healthiest and truest sense of the word. Forgiveness doesn't minimize the wrong of someone's actions. It just allows you to no longer be hurt by them. Forgiveness is associated with reduced depression, stress, and hostility. And it's also associated with improved self-esteem and even physical health. When you look at the benefits of forgiveness, you'll see that it's about being kind to yourself, not doing a favor for someone else. And remember, it doesn't have to mean that you're not going to seek justice for what was done to you. It just means that you're going to come to a more balanced sense of acceptance of what happened in a way that helps you incorporate it into your life and move forward. Number two, not forgiving yourself. We don't talk as much about not forgiving ourselves, but this is something that's really important too. Regret and embarrassment, shame, guilt, all of that from maybe just a single mistake can haunt people for years. I see it all the time in my practice. And the ensuing negative thoughts and stress and pessimistic outlook, they can create a dynamic in which you really get bitter and you view the world in a cynical way, all because you feel that you are unworthy of feeling okay. In fact, forgiving yourself has been shown to help reduce feelings of depression. If you find yourself plagued by thoughts of past mistakes, start noticing them and acknowledging them and exploring them. When are they at their worst? What feelings do they bring on? What makes them go away? If you're locked in a never-ending fight with your thoughts, trying to reason your way out of them, see if instead you can learn to accept their presence without endorsing their meaning. This is cognitive diffusion. Remember, this is the mindful acceptance and commitment therapy technique that we always talk about. You could say something like, I'm having the thought again about the time I really was cruel to my parents. Hi, thought. I hear you there. You can't hurt me right now because I'm deciding what to have for lunch. Of course, sometimes whatever you've done goes a lot deeper than just having intrusive thoughts about it. And in this case, we're talking about things that are incredibly, incredibly profound about whether or not you feel like you deserve to open yourself up to life again. For that, I would highly recommend listening to our episode with the late Dr. Marianne Gray, founder of the Hyacinth Fellowship. She went through the greatest challenge of all when it comes to forgiving yourself. She accidentally killed someone with her car. And thinking about the deeper questions of why we deserve to be on the earth and how we can open ourselves up to putting good out there if we're actually going to just keep punishing ourselves and how those two things can't really go together. Number three, we can't talk about bitterness without talking about all or none thinking or all or nothing thinking, dichotomous thinking, black or white thinking. I know it's come up before, but it's key here. It, of course, underlies so many different unhealthy psychological states from panic to low self-esteem perfectionism, hopelessness, catastrophizing. It's not uncommon to uncover some hidden or not so hidden patterns of all or none thinking 
in some of my clients, especially those that are struggling with a negative worldview. What all or none thinking does by its very definition is make your outlook on life more rigid. It magnifies negativity by making the bad stuff appear bigger than it really is. It keeps your mind focusing on what's gone wrong rather than what's gone right. And it sets you up to see the bad in people and in things and in life in general, much more often than the good. See if you can catch yourself making this mistake in daily life. Do you use a lot of words like always or never? Are you inherently uncomfortable with shades of gray and you prefer things to be more black and white? That might be good for organizing your sock drawer. That might be really good for organizing your sock drawer, actually. But when it comes to how you process bad things happening, that way of thinking can definitely hurt you and make you more bitter. Number four, holding others to a higher standard than you hold yourself. When you are constantly disappointed and annoyed with people around you, it could mean that you're having an unlucky break and not being treated the way that you deserve. It could also mean that you are choosing ill-fitting people to accompany you throughout life. Or it could mean that you have a set of overly rigid standards for other people's behavior that you don't apply to your own. In fact, sometimes we are hardest on others when we see our own traits in them, things that we don't like to admit or even imagine about ourselves. Seeing them in others makes us uncomfortable. Like the classic hypocrite who crusades against sins far smaller than the ones that they're committing themselves, it's bound to create a disconnect within us, and it'll cause stress and hostility and negativity. Examine what's really going on when you're chronically frustrated with someone, whether it's the stranger in the left-hand turn lane or your messy roommate. Are you looking at the whole picture? What if, instead of bathing in the negative energy, you chose to reflect on the last time you made a mistake and the way it may have looked to others? Sending empathy to others, even when you least want to, can be a surprisingly powerful tool to take away the anger. Number five, believing that things will never get better. Severe hopelessness can be particularly dangerous. It puts people at increased risk for depression and even suicidal thinking or behavior. But even milder beliefs about how things will never improve, those can do significant day-to-day damage too. Those constant thoughts, my sister will never get her act together. I'll never be able to pay off my student loans. The world is a bad place and it's getting worse. These are all beliefs that show some hopelessness and they can blind a person to significant evidence to the contrary. A lifetime is, for most of us, a decades-long ride. A ride that sees many highs and many lows, many ebbs and many flows, and no, I didn't mean to be a poet there, but when you believe that there's just going to be a downward trajectory, that obstructs the beauty of everyday things. And it keeps you inaccurately believing negative ideas. It gives them a staying power that they don't deserve. Imagine how much peace you could feel simply by allowing yourself to believe that beautiful things are out there in the world and they're yet to be experienced, even when there's mess. 
even when there's pain. It takes practice to see them, but they're there and they can coexist with the irritations and the jackanapes in the left-hand turn lane. Number six, believing that you have less control over your life than you really do. Learned helplessness, as it was first identified by Dr. Martin Seligman, that involves the belief that we don't have control over our situations, even when we do. And we convince ourselves that we shouldn't even bother to try. This mindset has been shown time and again to be correlated with depression. It's probably bi-directional in terms of its cause. Learned helplessness can cause depression. It's also a result of depression. And for some people, it really does follow a period of time when they truly didn't have much control over their lives. They learned to be helpless for a reason. Perhaps they were suffering abuse or neglect. But when that belief persists that we have no power, even when in actuality we've gained power back, we're denying ourselves the potential to make our lives better. And I know that when people have been traumatized, it's incredibly hard to change this thinking. But when we have this severe cognitive distortion of learned helplessness, and we can measure this, people truly underestimating the control that they have in certain situations. You can even look at it in a lab. How much control do you have over what card is going to be chosen in this next game? When you've got that mindset, not only does it bring you down and make your thinking more catastrophic, but it also truly means that you're not going to take some of the actions and build the new habits behaviorally and build the new pathways physically in your brain that can actually make changes. The more that we can feel that we steer our own ship, the more we can and we can build a life that suits us. Are you underestimating your ability to get out of that dead-end job or find a partner that treats you well or develop a peaceful resolution to your years-long fight with your brother? If you are underestimating that stuff, you're doing yourself a great disservice and you're increasing your chances of letting your mindset harden into a bitter one. Number seven, believing the myth of arrival. I know we've talked about this one before. That myth of arrival, it refers to that idea that once you've arrived at a certain point in your life, everything will fall into place and the life that you've waited for will finally begin. But sometimes this belief that things will automatically get better once a certain thing happens can be nearly as damaging as believing that things will never improve. Because this former belief, this myth of arrival belief, the idea that things will automatically get better just because a certain amount of time elapses or you arrive at a certain time in your life, that can set you up for a devastating letdown when things don't actually get better automatically. Once I finally meet the one, once I get this promotion, once I finally graduate, once I lose those 20 pounds, once I live in a bigger house, once I get my kids settled into independent and successful lives, then I'll be happy. These are all things that I've heard before. They're very common ways of thinking, even if it's not about those things in particular. It's this idea that, you know, once this happens, then this other stuff will automatically follow. 
But putting our happiness on hold and putting our happiness in the hands of a random life event that may or may not have any effect truly whatsoever on our happiness, that's giving way too much power to an external situation and not nearly enough to ourselves. It robs us of the ability to find joy on our own terms. It makes us miss the proverbial journey because we're so hyper-focused on the destination. Worst of all, it sets us up for a crash when we realize that it wasn't the small house making us depressed. It was the fact that we were depressed that was making us depressed. And that depression could have had different reasons entirely. And maybe that's what led to us being stuck in the first place. Number eight, overgeneralizing. This is one of those cognitive errors that Aaron Beck first identified as putting people at a higher risk for depression. And it often manifests into believing that if you fail at one thing, you'll fail at everything. This tendency to overgeneralize to turn a molehill of a setback into a mountain of a disaster also underlies the thinking patterns of a lot of people who have pervasive negative views of the world around them. Sometimes this type of thinking can even look like paranoia. Just this negativity as it goes toward others. If you give anybody an inch, they'll take a mile. Everybody's out to get everybody else. People will take advantage of you if you let them. The interesting thing is a lot of research actually is starting to point out we're not as selfish as people assume as a species. Of course, not every person is a paragon of virtue. Once again, we got those jack and apes in the left-hand turn lane. Honestly, I don't really even know what they're doing in the left-hand turn lane. It just seems like that's ripe for disaster. But the truth is, there is a lot of goodness out there if you are willing to look at it. Even better if you're willing to search for it in the first place. And just because there are scammers doesn't mean that you should stop helping those who aren't scammers. After all, helping others gives us a mood boost. So examine some of your beliefs to see if you can see some overgeneralization. It might look like all or none thinking at times. But a lot of times it just turns into thinking that the world is in general a dangerous or a hostile place, even against all available evidence. Because really, it could be that some of that hostility is coming from within. And so we've got to be able to reframe that. And finally, number nine on the habits that can make you bitter, not practicing gratitude. This one is probably something that your great-grandmother realized. And you've heard me talk about gratitude in this space a lot. To the point where maybe you'd be grateful if I'd stopped talking about gratitude. But it's so important. Being grateful for things big and small brings big benefits to your mental health. It is much harder to be bitter about your late-arriving dinner I'm never coming to this restaurant again and have it ruin your whole night if you allow yourself to acknowledge how gorgeous the blooming trees outside the restaurant window were while you waited 
or the fact that you're able to afford to pay someone to cook you a meal at all, or the fact that you're with somebody who can make you laugh about the late dinner, even though your stomachs were growling. And I know a lot of people think that gratitude is hokey. There's a lot of misconceptions about gratitude. So please, if you're so inclined, go and listen to our previous episode that was all about gratitude. There's a search function on the Baggage Check Podcast website. But even if some of it is hokey, would you rather be a little bit hokey, but a lot not bitter? Or would you be somebody who goes through life and really denies yourself the physical and mental health benefits of gratitude? You could have a better immune system that way. It's linked to better heart health. I think that stuff sounds better. We can make room for a little bit of hokiness. And really, when you think about it, if we truly think about what being bitter means, bitter is the opposite of grateful. So that's a pretty direct counteraction right there. So I hope that this has given you some things to think about. This came from some ideas I had within a piece for Psychology Today a couple of years ago, and it really seemed to resonate with people. So there's no judgment here. If you consider yourself a bitter person, it's okay. There are things you can do to work on it and to feel better. So if this resonated with you, let me know. Thanks for joining me today. Once again, I'm Dr. Andrea Bonnier, and this has been Baggage Check with new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Join us on Instagram at Baggage Check Podcast. Give us your take and opinions on topics and guests. And you know you've got that friend who listens to like 17 podcasts. We'd love it if you told them where to find us. Our original music is by Jordan Cooper, cover art by Daniel Merity, and my studio security, it's Buster the Dog. Until next time. Take good care.